Great. So as Andy, thanks for your introduction. And as Andy has already said, we're going to be thinking particularly uh, this morning about talking Jesus, Jesus uh, style. Um, What was the Jesus model for doing evangelism? And is that a model for us? Um, because there are some Christians that, that they say because of Jesus' unique identity as uh, the one and only Son of God, you know, we can't look to him as a model um, for how to do Christian life and ministry. Well, sure enough, Jesus, of course, has a unique identity um, as the incarnate Son of God and a unique mission as the Savior of the world. Um, and yet, uh, in other ways, I believe very much we can look to him um, um, as, as a model for redeemed humanity. In fact, Uh, My contention, my belief, is that the incarnation, um, the doctrine of God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation is a model for redeemed humanity more than most Christians would dare believe. And uh, so I'm unapologetic in actually looking at this passage, which is, um, we'll we'll get to in a moment, which is Jesus' encounter with uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and see how he uh, does mission in that particular context. Well, first of all, perhaps you can identify with this guy. Um, Maybe you have an acute case of evangophobia. Uh, Maybe it's undiagnosed. Uh, I sometimes quit when I'm doing training sessions for clergy. Um, Not my favorite thing usually when I go and do that. The vicars are there with their arms folded like this in defensive posture. But anyway, I sometimes quip that uh, I despair sometimes that uh, the, 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 the gap between church culture and secular culture is so wide, um, to, to, partly to do with secular humanism, that I sometimes despair that Christians and non-Christians uh, have nothing in common. Uh, but then I remember, ah, they both hate evangelism. So uh, maybe that's you. Um, maybe you're evangelophobic. Uh, you kind of hate evangelism. Or maybe, probably the truth of the matter is, if you really don't like it, maybe it's because you fear evangelism. Um, psychologists tell us, don't they? And it's true that very often the things that we don't like, it's often to do with um, a fear, particularly perhaps in us men, when we express it, we externalize it as, as anger or something we don't like. Um, but actually deep down, it's to do with fear. So maybe it, um, it's true to the word evangelophobia in the t- true sense of that word uh, linguistically. Anyway, whatever, if that's you, what I, want, what I hope today, that the message goes some way in releasing you from your evangelophobia. Uh, because I, I um, understand it, I encounter people all the time who say to me, look, it's just, uh, this evangelism thing is just not for me. I leave it to the keen beans and uh, I get on with uh, doing something else. Um, so don't, uh, don't despair. But what, what I would say just in, in, in starting is that if, you've, if, you've, if you're in that category, if you've got evangelophobia, um, then it could well be because you, you, you've had a bad experience in terms of teaching or or, or, or something which has led you to that place. And uh, my experience often is that uh, that, that is, is the case. And, um, and actually people who fear um, the, the task of evangelism, talking Jesus, is because of a reason like that. Now, I've just used the word evangelism, I, real, I realize. So evangelism, that's the technical word most of us know, I'm sure, uh, for what we're calling in this series, talking Jesus. Evangelism is from uh, the Greek word, euangelion, uh, which appears in the New Testament, which literally means good message or good news. And uh, what it means is um, that uh, the church collectively and Christians individually were called to be heralds of this, this good message. That's, that's what the word means. So perhaps one of the easiest ways to understand this is like the old concept of a town crier before... 
um, TV and news and even printed media. Britain, there used to be a town crier who'd rock up into town, you know, like Peterborough, by, no doubt, by the cathedral, and he'd be there with his funny hat, ring his bell, oh, you know, listen in, listen in. Um, there's news, there's news, there's what we now call breaking news, and that's the essence of what um, evangelism is. So if, if you fear getting involved in the enterprise of evangelism, talking Jesus, it could be for one of a few reasons. Well, one reason could be this, um, that, you, that um, you assume that all of us are called to be evangelists. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, says this about evangelists. It says, he, that is the ascended Christ, he gave some, not all, some to be evangelists. And sometimes my fellow evangelists, I think, are guilty of speaking in such a way that actually they give the impression that everybody should be like them. Everybody should be leading people to Christ like them. Everyone should be kind of um, bold and, and uh, maybe a, a bit kind of risk-averse and things like that. And that, as well as being wrong, I believe that's wrong biblically, it's counterproductive because what it does is cause people to uh, fear evangelism. So if, that's, if, that's, um, if you've been taught that or picked up that idea, uh, let me uh, release, release you from that. We're not all called to be evangelists. He called some to be evangelists. I'm, I'm one of those um, people who's, who's an evangelist, but he has called us to be witnesses. So each one of us, if we name the name of Jesus, if we've given our life to Jesus Christ, we're called to be uh, his witnesses. Those like John the Baptist who point beyond themselves, like John the Baptist, you remember the forerunner of Jesus, who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a call for all of us who dare to name the name of Jesus, those of us who are Christian disciples. Okay, the second reason why sometimes people are evangelophobic is you may well have been part of um, a culture previously where evangelism was seen as a solemn duty. I meet uh, Christians who've, who've sometimes gone to churches or been part of uh, churches where evangelism is seen as, a, as, a, as a something you must do. You've got to evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. Just recently at Wycliffe Hall Chapel, where I'm, where I'm a lecturer in Oxford, we had a speaker this term, and the speaker this term was an inspiring man who said... That, he, that whenever he gets into a conversation with a non-Christian, he never leaves it more than five minutes without mentioning the gospel. Now, that's was, that was, uh, inspiring. Uh, it, I was even more inspired because this man was a Church of England bishop, so I found that even more inspiring. But actually, if that became um, a kind of rule of thumb for everybody, then it, we would be in danger of making it law. That's good for him. He's an evangelist, this guy who's a, a bishop. But actually, if that, was put, if, if that was put on the whole body of Christ, so to speak then the net um, effect is um, legalism. And that's what happens sometimes in, 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 in some churches, um, that a yoke of legalism is put, put on um, uh, Christians. I know that's, that, that's not part of the culture, that's not part of the tradition here, but you could have been part of a church formerly where that was the case. Um, and actually my belief is this, that the most effective form of evangelism um, isn't that we must, but that we get to. The most effective form of evangelism is from the overflow. Um, it's when a disciple's heart and mind is so gripped with the gospel of grace that we just can't resist giving it away. That's the second thing. Okay, the third thing is this. You might have had exposure to a type of evangelism, a model of evangelism, that uh, someone has said, look, this is what you must do. You must use this model, and you find that it just doesn't work for you. Now, there are lots of models of personal evangelism out there. Two ways to live. You might have come across that one, four spiritual laws. I could go on. Um, and uh, these, these types of evangelism that Christians have devised are great. They're used of the Lord to bear much fruit. 
But the danger comes when we take a one-size-fits-all approach and say, look, this is a type of evangelism. Everybody must follow this. I don't think, we need a, I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all. I think evangelism, you know, talking Jesus is something which is much more bespoke, something which fits your personality, your gifting, your experience. And as much as I salute those forms of personal evangelism, one of the drawbacks with them sometimes is that they can be programmatic and not relational. And I've come across some people who've been told that they must use these kind, kinds of personal evangelism. And what they find is, what they discover is that this doesn't work for me. And so what they do is they end up rejecting evangelism completely rather than that particular model. So maybe you come into one of those uh, three categories. So my word at the start is this, be, be, be free. And what we're going to do, do now is look at this story of Jesus and his encounter with the Samaritan woman. And what we see is something that isn't programmatic, certainly not something that's legalistic, but we see a model for talking Jesus which actually is life-giving and something which is liberating for most, most of us. I think most of us as Christian disciples, whether we're evangelists or not, when we look at Jesus in action, we can say, yeah, I, I can, I can, I can, maybe I could do that. In God's strength, by his power, maybe I could do that. So let's consider five principles then to do with talking Jesus that I believe are relevant for us today. The first thing that Jesus did in his encounter with the Samaritan woman is this. He found natural points of contact. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So a little bit of background to do with the passage might be useful. The woman that Jesus talked to um, really in sociological terms had three things um, not really going for her in terms of the culture of the day 2,000 years ago. Let's look at those. The first one was her gender, the fact that she was a woman. In the culture of the day, the Near Eastern culture of the day, women were not considered equal to men, and it was unusual, indeed, even countercultural, uh, for Jesus to initiate a conversation with her. I think that accounts partly for her surprise. The second thing is her religion. The woman was not part of orthodox, mainstream Judaism, but in fact she was a Samaritan, we're told that. And the Samaritans were considered a heretical sect by mainstream Jews. And therefore they were subjects of social ostracization because of the holiness codes that were in place to do with the Old Testament. When someone was considered impure or they had, they had wrong teaching, erroneous teaching, um, Orthodox um, believers in God, in Yahweh, distanced themselves from that particular person or that particular thing. So the Samaritans were, were subject um, to that. So she was part of a group which was not considered part of mainstream Judaism. She was considered in some ways an outcast because of her religion. And number three, um, her relationship status. As the conversation ensues, it turns out that the woman is cohabiting and in fact, um, she's a serial divorcee. It turns out she's been married five times. Now, as such, the woman would have been considered immoral. The story indirectly speaks of this in that the woman was collecting water 
on her own and not in a group. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because it, part of the culture of the day um, was very collective. It was very communitarian. Uh, what would have been the tradition is a, a woman would have gone with a group of other women to collect water um, in, a, in, a, in a group. And this woman was on her own. And she was collecting water at the hottest part of the day. That indicates, again, that she was considered an outcast even within her own uh, social, cultural group, the Samaritan, um, the Samaritan group. Um, the woman was a, a social outcast, um, of social outcasts in many ways. But what happens when God becomes man in the person of Jesus Christ, he reaches out to her. Even before we consider in more detail these five principles for doing talking Jesus, Jesus style, it's worth noting and remembering that the gospel is so often a stumbling block to the wealthy, the privileged, and the established. And yet it is, and it always has been, good news to the marginalized, the broken, and the dispossessed. In this context, the first thing Jesus does is he finds a natural point of connection with the woman. The woman is drawing water, we're told, from Jacob's well, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Jesus' response uh, to her um, elicits surprise because Jesus is breaking the religious and cultural conventions of the day to make a provocative statement about the gospel. Well, how different um, is this example of the Lord Jesus from many of our attempts at sharing good news? The following, what I'm just going to share now, is a genuine chapter from a book on evangelism that adorns uh, one of my shelves at home. So there's a particular chapter in this book that says everyday opportunities to share Christ. And the person who's written the book, he's trying to encourage people in personal evangelism. And as I said at the beginning, uh, it's not really a point, it's really like a kind of anti-point because... Uh, you'll see, maybe you'll see, that uh, perhaps this isn't the most encouraging way of doing it. This is suggestion number one. He says this. When on a plane journey and somebody asks you, what's your final destination? The answer, heaven, will provide a good opening. <laughs> I suggest that is not probably the best thing, particularly in today's uh, cultural climate. You may well get escorted off uh, the airplane for various reasons, but uh, you might you sort of scare people slightly. You imagine that. What's your final destination? Heaven. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, but this is a genuine suggestion. Here's number two. Get the city phone book and starting with A, phone everyone with the message, God has burdened me to phone you. What's your relationship with Jesus? Mm, slightly disingenuous there, but you might want to try that. There's probably a lot of people in Peterborough. Get the phone book online these days, no doubt, and you know, go through the whole lot, A to Z. And uh, keep, you, keep you going till the Lord returns, I'm sure. Um, number three. How about this one? Always keep a pile of tracts by your front door, ready for any visitors who might call. Don't know what you've got by your door. Uh, we've got a shoe rack, I think. But what about a tract rack? Um, you could have, um, why Jesus? Maybe that's a little bit tame. So when the postman is winding his way down the path, you could look for a different one and think, ah, here's one. Postman in the hands of an angry God. That'll do. Give him that one, maybe. How about this one? Put an evangelistic message on your mobile phone. We've all got one these days, haven't we? Yours probably just goes, uh, hi there, uh, sorry, it's Sue. Uh, can't take your call right now, please call back. But Sue, if, if you're listening, and there's no doubt a Sue in the room, uh, you might well want to add, uh, um, and, but I just want to ask you this question. Uh, sorry, I'm not in the moment to take your call, but have you been dipped in the blood of the lamb? <laughs> have you been bound by the blessed bonds of Calvary's tree? Something, something like that might, might do the trick, I don't know. But my favourite, perhaps, is, is the last one, which says this. 
Um, other exciting places to share Christ, petrol stations, public toilets. <laughs> Bizarre, he just picks two. Why out of all the places he picks two? It's obviously it's a bloke who's written this, even more surprising, because I'd suggest to you, a gentleman urinal probably is not the best place to strike up a conversation about the gospel. Anyway, the point of me sharing this is if these suggestions don't resonate with you, fear not. Um, I'm an evangelist, they don't resonate with me either. And they're very different, aren't they, from Jesus. Jesus' example of building a relationship with the woman in the story and then using a natural point of connection to share good news. In passing, it's worthy of note how Jesus' one answer contains such a powerhouse of truth. Let's just consider it for a moment, his answer, which is recorded in John chapter 4, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God... That is, the gospel is the gospel of grace. And who it is that asks you for a drink, the identity of Jesus is key. You would have asked him the necessity of response. And he would have given you living water in this world in which we live, where people are looking for love in all the wrong directions. It's only the presence of Jesus that can satisfy so that's point one. Point two is this. Be open to being naturally supernatural. Pick the story up at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, she said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. The second principle for talking Jesus, Jesus style, is to be open to being naturally supernatural. Notice how seamlessly Jesus moves from the natural to the supernatural. The woman initially interprets Jesus' provocative gospel comment literally, and she wants the endless supply of water. And Jesus uh, speaks to her, and he speaks to her prophetically. We don't often see it, but actually what we see here, uh, Jesus in complete dependency on the Father, he's operating in the prophetic, what is sometimes called a word of knowledge by Paul in Corinthians. And actually, uh, the woman's complicated life so far, that's brought into the open by Jesus uh, using um, this prophetic word. Now the danger here, I think, is that we say, well, that's Jesus, he was God, maybe he was doing the God thing. But actually, Jesus, in the incarnation, laid aside some of his attributes of being divine. Didn't lay, about, lay aside anything to do with his divinity, but certain attributes of being divine. The obvious, one obvious one is uh, omnipresence. Jesus was located in a particular place at a particular time with the incarnation. But he also lay aside, I believe, omniscience. He didn't know all things. He knew things uh, as revealed to him by the Father. And he lived, obviously, in perfect relationship in tandem with God the Father. It's my conviction that Jesus operating in prophetic words, in words of knowledge like this in evangelism, is something that God would long to do through us, his people, much more than actually happens. Let me share a story uh, with you about a friend of mine called, uh, called Donna. Uh, this is a photograph of uh, uh, Donna. And a few years ago, I checked into to my Facebook and I saw Donna's status that said this. Donna is in excruciating back pain. And um, a little bit of uh, the backstory with Donna. I'd known Donna for a few years. Donna was not a follower of Jesus. Um, she was married to a guy called Will. Uh, he wasn't uh, a follower of Jesus as well. They weren't part of any church or anything. 
uh, anything like that. And uh, she was quite cynical. She'd had a bit of a church background. And um, like a lot of people who've been exposed to Christianity and kind of moved on as they see it, she was a little bit cynical. Um, anyway, when I saw her status, it said, Donna is in excruciating back pain. Um, all I can describe it uh, as like this, kind of faith rose in me. And I had a kind of prophetic sense that not just that God could heal her back, but God would heal her back. And so I sent her a private message on Facebook. And I said, dear Donna, I was in the United States at a conference. I said, dear Donna, um, I believe God is going to heal your back. Um, So here's a little prayer that you can pray. And I gave her a little prayer. Uh, Dear Jesus, please heal my back pain. Amen. And uh, because I'm an Anglican vicar, I thought, give her a little bit of liturgy. That might help. And uh, anyway, off I I went to my conference. I checked into Facebook later in the day. And I noticed Donna's status had changed. It now said, Donna's back is healed. Praise the Lord. And this this was not the way that she she spoke. That wasn't the language she used at all. So it took a while until I got back to England and saw Donna that I was able to discover something of the backstory. Sure enough, Donna, uh, that particular day, she was in agony with her back. She said she was sat on the couch. And if you move to the right or the left, she was in agony. And uh, Will, Will, her husband, was at work. She was looking after her two little kids. And she said she saw my message, my pri- private message through Facebook. And she said when she saw it, she said, I felt cynical. Not faith, not faith rising, she felt cynical. And, um, and then she said, well, you know, here's the prayer that he's written. I thought, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I may as well pray it. So she prayed, dear Lord Jesus, please in my back pain, amen. And she said when I got to the amen, the back pain, my, my back was instantly healed. So I moved to the right, no pain, moved to the left. Uh, uh, no, no pain. The pain was completely gone. And she said to me, she started rolling on the floor and laughing. I don't know why that was the case, but her children go, Mummy, Mummy, what's the matter? Because you're rolling on the floor and laughing. And at the end of uh, this story is that uh, Donna uh, came to give her life to, to Christ. So did her husband, Will. Um, they're part of a church uh, near Hereford. And a few years ago, they asked me to come and be a speaker for their weekend away for their church. church. The children are growing up, they're the bringing up the children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. And the last time I spoke to Will, he, was actually, he wanted to talk to me about ordination. He was interested in uh, uh, becoming a vicar. And so extra, extraordinary, extraordinary fruit that's come from that kingdom um, in breaking. Um, I think the Lord would have us be more open than we are to using us to speak um, uh, to those who don't know him through prophetic words, through words of knowledge. There was a famous book a few years ago called Power Evangelism by a famous minister called John Wimber who founded the Vineyard Group of Churches. And, um, and his book was called Power Evangelism. And um, uh, a friend of mine um, said a, f- a few years ago, uh, he said this, he said, I really believe we've taken power evangelism and made it power fellowship. You know, the gifts of the Spirit, we, we lock them up within the confines of the church when actually God would, uh, uh, God's desire would be for us to use them um, externally to those who don't yet know him. Okay, number three, take the conversation from religion to relationship. Verse 21, Jesus declared, believe me woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and indeed has already come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and, those, and, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. No sooner had the woman declared Jesus to be a prophet than potentially the conversation could have been embroiled in religious controversy. Um, verse 19, the woman 
says this, after declaring Jesus a prophet, verse 20, she says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. She means Gerizim. But you, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But it's amazing, Jesus' response, because it's a masterclass as to how to, to bypass um, needless religious controversy and actually get the conversation onto the main thing, the heart of the gospel. It's not that apologetics is, isn't important. We need to develop robust apologetics for all kinds of questions. But so often in religiosity and religious debate, that's not where the life is. And Jesus manages to take the conversation from religion to relationship. Um, Jesus uh, says to the woman, really, that the place of worship isn't significant. The holy mountain, whether uh, Gerizim or, or Zion, isn't it? that's not of the essence, says Jesus. Um, what, what is important is that people are worshippers of God um, in spirit and in truth. True worshippers that God desires are those that worship the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit and in truth. And Jesus is truth. God, the main thing is that, that God calls us to worship the one true God, the Trinitarian God, and worshipping him, um, were changed into his likeness. The American theologian John Piper uh, has famously said, mission exists because worship doesn't. And that puts it really well. That's really the aim of talking Jesus, that actually, not that we might export our worldview primarily, but that, but that actually men and women might become um, worshippers of the one true God. And in do so, um, they get changed. This is a copy of a painting which hangs in my office. It's called Unveiled Faces by uh, John Steiner. And it's a depiction of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 to 18. A famous verse, you might be familiar with it, that says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the Lord's will for us and for all people and should be our motivation in mission. Okay, principle number four, unashamedly point to Christ. The fourth principle for talking Jesus, Jesus style, is uh, to make it unashamedly about Jesus. Now, it sounds a bit strange to say that um, in the case of um, Jesus' evangelism, him pointing people to Jesus, but that's exactly what he did, having steered the conversation away from religion to relationship, Jesus, with unusual candor and without hesitation, declares himself to be the promised Messiah. Verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you, I am he. We need to be those who unashamedly point people to Jesus Christ. Um, it was Mahatma Gandhi years ago who famously said, I don't like you Christians, but I do like your Christ. The Lord Jesus really is our biggest asset, saints. Jesus is still the most attractive, kind, and loving person that it's possible to know on the face of planet Earth. Let's unashamedly talk about Jesus. And fifthly and finally, coming into land, expect fruitfulness. I love this postscript to the story, verse 39. When we're told this, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. You know, if there was a patron saint of gossiping the gospel, this woman would be it. Um, I love the kind of hyperbole there. You know, Jesus uses the word of knowledge to tell her about her, 
you know, domestic situation. And she goes, you know, he told me everything I ever did, you know, the, the whole lot. A little bit of hyperbole, I think, there. But never mind, she's gossiping, she's gossiping the gospel. And then we're told that the Samaritans uh, came to him, they urged him to stay, and Jesus stayed for two days. And because of his words, many people became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Do you know, sometimes those of us who are nervous about talking Jesus, it's because we're scared. You know, we're scared to do it for, for a start off, but we're scared maybe nothing will happen. I don't know whether you've heard the alternative beatitude. Blessed is he who does not expect much, for he will not be disappointed. That alternative beatitude, it doesn't just work, it's applicable for the whole of the Christian life, but it's applicable for, for evangelism, for talking Jesus too. If we don't expect anything to happen, perhaps we shouldn't surprise be surprised when it doesn't. Up until six months ago, I was on the staff of a church called St. Michael Le Belfry, which is in the shadow of York Minster. There's a photograph of it here. You can see the uh, little church, church there. It actually seats about 800, but it looks a little church in the shadow of um, the largest Gothic cathedral in Europe, which is York Minster. And um, my, my office used to be opposite the, uh, opposite the, the uh, cathedral. And so that's St. Michael Belfry there on the left-hand side, the minster on the right. And there was one particular day, just before, uh, not long before I left, um, I was in that area there that you've just seen called Minster Piazza, and I was on my mobile phone, and I'd just finished my call. No sooner has I, had I finished my call, there were five um, school kids wanting to speak to me. They were, as it happened, they, they were all, all girls, um, these school kids. And it turns out that these five school kids, they were on a day trip from Holland, Every year, their school um, in The Hague, near The Hague, um, apparently they used, they, they, the whole group of the year group, nearly 200 of them, apparently came over on the boat to, um, to uh, Hull, to Hull and, um, and spent the day in York and then got the boat back in the, got the ferry back in the evening. Anyway, these, these five school children, um, I hung up on my mobile phone and uh, they said, can we speak to you? They had impeccable English, these five girls. And uh, they said, we're doing a survey, um, we've got a questionnaire about York, and we, we, we thought you might be able to help. Now, I don't know why they picked me. I was wearing a clerical collar at the time, and uh, so I was about to take the, the, lunch, the lunchtime service at St. Michael Belfry, and so it may be because I was dressed as a vicar. But I said, yeah, yeah, I'll help. And, um, and one of them uh, said to me, okay, here are the questions. Um, what is the um, Roman name for York? So I said, oh, Ibocorum. So they wrote that down. And then they said, uh, what about uh, the, the, the Viking name uh, for York. I said, oh, Jorvik. And they wrote, you know, Jorvik, great, wrote that down. And they said, what is the patron saint that York Minster's dedicated to? And I said, St. Peter. So they wrote that down. Anyway, I knew, I knew all their questions. And they got, I, they got them. They said, we're done. We're finished. We've, we've, uh, we've finished our survey. That's good. So then I said to these five, five teenagers, I said, look, you've been asking me questions. Can I ask you a question? And they said, yeah, yeah, f- you know, f- for sure. So I said, do you, do you believe in God? Well, the first one said she was an atheist. The second one was an atheist. There was a third one who was also an atheist. Um, a fourth girl said, oh, I believe there's an energy out there. That's what she said. And the fifth one um, said, oh, I believe there's something there. I'm not sure. I believe there's something there. So I said, well, can I just take a few minutes to, you know, I'm a, I'm a vicar, pastor, as you can see. Can I just take a few minutes to just explain to you what the heart of Christianity is? And they went, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's fine. So I said a quick arrow prayer, you know, like, like you do. And I thought, you know, gosh, we've got about five minutes here. And uh, so in about five minutes, I explained to them, I tried to explain to them the essence of what Christianity was all about, the essence of the gospel. And I felt they all listened attentively. And they said, oh, very interesting, very interesting. And that was it. And uh, that was the response, very interesting. 
So then um, I tried a different tack, and I said, look, um, sometimes if a person doesn't believe, I think they can pray the atheist's prayer. Do you know what that is? And they said, no. And I said, the atheist's prayer is, God, if you exist, reveal yourself to me. And I said, you could pray that if you're an agnostic or an atheist. I said, I've got an idea here. How about one of you volunteer, and uh, you could, I could lead you in the atheist's prayer. You could pray that. And then I'll just pray for you that God might answer the prayer, that he might reveal himself to you. And, um, and uh, is anyone up for that? So Erica, one of the girls who said there's something there, she said, oh, I volunteer, she said. So basically, I led her in the atheist prayer, so she prayed, Lord, if you exist, make yourself known to me, amen. And then with her, with her permission, I, just put, I put a hand on her sh- shoulder, and I just prayed that God would reveal himself to her, that uh, he would uh, touch her by his Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, anyway, I was, she interrupted my prayer. And, um, you know, it's like in the Acts of the Apostles where the Spirit of God fell before the apostles had finished. And it was like that. I was still doing my nice little flowery prayer. And she interrupted my prayer and started speaking in Dutch, obviously, to the other four. And she lifted her hand up and she was um, saying something about her hand. So, I, you know, I stopped my prayer. I thought, well, obviously, I've been heckled and interrupted. And I said, what are you saying? And she said, oh, I was just saying to my friends here that when you, pr- when you pray, I felt this amazing feeling. And she said, I felt this, this tingling, and she said, this warmth. And she said, my hand is like in a spasm. He said, my hand is spa- spasming, amazing feeling. And I said, um, what do you think that is? And she said, without any hesitation, God. And I said, um, I'm not, I thought you weren't sure he existed. And she said, well, I, he does exist. He said, this is God. Uh, so she interpreted it for herself. So I said, look, would you like to give your life? Would you like to, to God? Would you like to become a Christian, give your life to Jesus? She, she said, yes. So I said to the other four, look, does anyone else want in on this? And uh, two of them did. Two of them didn't, fair enough. But two of them said, oh, yes, me, 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 me. So I had the privilege of praying with three of them there to, to, give, their lives, uh, to give their lives to Christ. And at the end of the story, not, not long after the prayer, two um, young guys, uh, teenage um, uh, guys came along, um, and, uh, they, and they basically got us into conversation. One of them said, oh, I wanted to go into York Minster, but it's 20 euros to get in. So I said, I looked at my watch, and it was a little bit of time before the communion service. I said, do you want me to, uh, I, can, I can take you in for free. So I did. So I took this little group of now seven of them around York Minster, gave them a bit of a tour. We got to the high altar, the top end of York Minster. There were two Minster clergy preparing for communion, cassock clad. They glided across the sanctuary to put out the silver chalice and prepare for communion. I knew them. I knew these, these clergy. Um, there was the choir stalls that was full with school children there was a, there were, who were having a, a lecture. There was, they were having a tour, and the, the, the choir stalls were full with people. And we were on the high altar step. And um, at this point, Erika, the, the first girl who'd um, become a Christian, um, she, she was talking to one of the boys um, in, in Dutch again. And I knew she was talking about what had happened because she was doing this with her hand. She was simulating the spasm. So I said, do you mind? What are you saying? She said, oh, I was just telling Ben here uh, what happened and how you um, prayed f- for me and I experienced God. And then we three of us, we gave our, you know, we became Christian or something, or something like this. And uh, I said, Ben, what do you think about that? And he said, he said, that's amazing. And I said, are you, uh, do you believe? And he said, I do. He said, I'm a Christian. He said, and he said, he goes to church in, in, uh, near the Hague. And he said, but he said, we go to um, my, my family. He said, we go to a reformed church. He said, we don't, uh, the, we know we don't, I've not heard of the Holy Spirit like this or experienced the Holy Spirit in this way. And he said, amazing. So I said, well, would you like me to pray for you that you might experience the Spirit? And he said, yes. So I just basically, with his permission again, laid a hand on his shoulder and said, Lord, fill him with your Holy Spirit. His eyes began flickering. And then he, the guy, he was slain in the Spirit. I, literally, I had to catch it. I literally, because it was on the top of this stone step. And I literally, and I got around there, and I caught him, and I lowered him to the ground, and he was shaking there, overcome by the Holy Spirit. So I was just looking around, more Lord. All the kids in the, 
The kids in the choir stalls were all thinking, what on earth is going on? The kids were looking. The two clergy, one of them glided past, uh, who I know, and she said to me, she said, oh, we don't get that very often in here. And, uh, and then I carried on praying, you know, come Holy Spirit. And then the other clergy person glided past, and he said, oh, you can pray for me if you want later. And um, so, um, um, so that, that was that. Anyway, I managed to get to the communion service for Michael Belfry. At the end of the communion service, um, one of the girls, Erica, she was there, there waiting to talk to me. And she, she said to me, oh, pastor, she called me pastor. She said, uh, would you come and meet our, our teacher? He wants to meet you. We've, we've, told, we've told him about you, and uh, he wants to come and meet you. We're all... We're all and I went, uh, yes, yes, so I went out. The whole group were there, about 180 of them on the minster steps. I'm, I, in trepidation, talked to the teacher, like, what's going to go on here? Anyway, he said, he said, I just want to thank you, he said, for what you've done. He said, giving a free tour for the minster to these children. But he said, you have deeply impacted them. And he said, uh, they, uh, so thank you. Whatever you've said has deeply impacted them. Thank you very much. And I wonder, maybe, I come every year with a group, perhaps uh, uh, next year, we could um, come into your church and you could give us a lecture about religion in St. Michael the Belfry. So I said, well, yeah, I could do that if you want. You know, that, would be, that would be fine. You know, things like this don't happen all the time. I wish, I wish they did. But when they do happen, it's wonderful. Praise the Lord. Our God is the great evangelist. He is more willing uh, to reach out to people than we are. And yet he graciously wants to use us in mission. Coming into land, the end of the story is these Samaritan people who lived in the village. They said this, we don't just believe because of your testimony, they said to the woman, we believe that Jesus is the saviour of the world. And that's uh, what we aim for all people to believe, isn't it? That Jesus is the saviour of the world. Jesus is the rescuer of humanity. He is the one who came came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so this really is the end point of our attempts at talking Jesus, that men and women might not, just, might not just believe, but they might know that Jesus is the saviour of the world, and not just the world, but that he is their personal saviour, that he is their rescuer. So inspired by Jesus' example, may God fill each one of us afresh, to, uh, fill us to overflowing with his Holy Spirit, that with minds informed and with hearts ablaze, may it be that we just can't resist speaking of what we have seen and heard. Amen.